Let's begin with the word Seder. On Passover, we have a Passover Seder. These two words are a dichotomy. They're a contradiction in terms. Passover, which means to jump, to literally to leap over, connotes something radical, something extreme, something abrupt, something disconnected from before. The Hebrew word Seder actually denotes order and gradualism, where things go from point A to point B sequentially. And we have a Passover Seder, which means we're trying to create order out of something which is disorderly or higher than order. And of course, this is ironic, but in Judaism and in Jewishness, there's nothing unusual about the ironic. And there's a very, very good reason for it. And I believe this reason is not only a good reason, but it's moving. It has uh, almost an emotional quality to it. And that is that it would be impossible to duplicate Passover. Once upon a time, something happened. We believe that it actually happened in the real world, in real time, in a real place, by a real king and a real nation of Jewish people. And we also believe that when we get together and Passover and commemorate it and celebrate it, this is far more than a historical recollection but that there's in some spiritual way a recreation, a reenactment of that energy, if not of those conditions and those circumstances and facts. And the story of Passover is an incredible story. It's an unbelievable story. It's a story of miracles. It's a story of the supernatural. And most importantly, it's the story of a nation being born where no nation existed, not slowly, not gradually, not through a normal pattern of evolution, but virtually spontaneously, magically, miraculously. A nation that was completely crushed, whose entire identity was slavery, not only became free, but acquired an identity of their own. It was very magical. It was very, very special. In, in the human condition, it is a fact that you can never reenact, you can never recreate a magic moment. If something happened to you in your lifetime that was extraordinary, and you wanted to feel the rush, the power, the passion of that moment, it's impossible to recreate it. It's even difficult to visualize it. Because when things happen to us that are unbelievable, there's a certain part of our psyche that literally doesn't believe it happened. I think this is real. When we use the word unbelievable, that's exactly what we mean. If you, if you witnessed an unbelievable event where there was, God forbid, a car accident and someone came out without a scratch, a little while after, not very long after, you will have a hard time believing it actually occurred because it's so big, it's so beyond our fathoming and our imagination and our everyday experience that it becomes difficult for us to relate to it as real. So we are going to recreate, when reenact, re-experience, go back to and be again in the Passover mindset and condition, in other words, that a person, a human being, should sit with his family and create a sense of going from one world into an entirely different world in a magical and miraculous and abrupt way, it would be, it's simply impossible to do. So the rabbis came up with an alternative. And the alternative is to create an order, a series of rituals that we do every year, exactly the same way. All of us know exactly what they are. There are no surprises in that. We're not trying to recreate 
the drama and the extreme and the, the wildness of the initial event. We're trying to create a very peaceful, collected, manageable event, the kind of circumstance and experience which is ordinary. But to focus in on the energy of the Passover, or the energy of, of being born as a nation, of going from a terrible condition into an incredibly a wonderful condition in a very, very short time. The reason we do this is because this is the only way to make Passover sustainable, lasting. If, for example, when Passover came, a human being, a Jew, tried to reenact the events of Passover um, by repeating that circumstance, creating that terror and that fear, and um, the unleashing of divine miracles, and the very, very quick departure of the Jewish nation from that land, either it would be an act, which would be, of course, meaningless, no point in doing acts. People do reenactments of, of the Civil War and of the, of the War of Independence, but we're not doing reenactments. We're trying to get in and take out that energy. Or, or it would be unsustainable, or, or the intensity would be this such that it would burn us up. We couldn't possibly recreate that experience again and come out of it alive, so to speak. So the alternative is to create something entirely different. Create something very orderly, very peaceful, very predictable, and to focus in on the fact that once upon a time something very magical occurred. We cannot recreate that magic. But we want to acknowledge our inability to recreate that magic. But in that acknowledgement, we want to connect to it. And connect to it through the order, through the steps, through the details of the Passover Seder. We allow ourselves in our imagination and in our minds to go back into that space and to pass over, to go out of those kinds of constraints, to go out of what we are and to leap into a, a relative state of redemption in as much as it applies to our own personal lives and to our own personal experience. At the Passover Seder, there are two opposing themes, both represented by a series of rituals. Forgive me, I want to give you the Hebrew, and then of course I'll translate it. Those two are, Derech which means the way of freedom, and Shibud, and Avdus, which means slavery. There are things we do at the Passover Seder to demonstrate that we're free. For example, we drink four cups of wine, which is, which is a sign of wealth, obviously. We have a tendency, the custom is, to drink the cup to the bottom. Usually in Jewish law, you're not supposed to down a cup in one gulp. It's not considered respectful. But at Passover Seder, you drink the entire cup to the bottom in one shot. In addition, we lean. Many parts of the Seder, when we eat different foods, we lean. Apparently, once upon a time, that was considered fashionable. I can't imagine eating laying down, but this is the tradition that the Passover Seder we lean. Moreover, there are many other things that we do that are meant to demonstrate the fact that tonight we're free. For example, people have a tradition to put the most expensive possessions that they own on the Passover Seder. The best gold, the best silver utensils are used for Passover. Passover is a short time, and it's a small part of our year. Nevertheless, we would often have nicer vessels to put on the Passover table than we would all year long because we want to celebrate our freedom. On the other hand, we have a number of things which we do that are designed specifically to remind us of slavery. For example, the murrah, the bitter herb which we eat, and in some communities it's actually quite bitter. The charoises, this, this 
this mush, this concoction of apples and nuts and other things that we mix together that's meant to look like cement, mortar, to remind us of the fact that the Jewish people made mud bricks in the ancient world, as opposed to stone, and uh, glued them together with some kind of a, a cement. The salt water that we dip the carpas in is meant to remind us of tears. And, of course, both of these uh, dimensions or dynamics play themselves out throughout the Passover Seder. We're continuously, so to speak, interchanging ritual that's reminiscent of joy and freedom and celebration and ritual that uh, reminds us of a, of a lesser time, of a more painful time. And the logic to this is very, very clear, very plain. Anybody who wishes to appreciate freedom must contemplate the opposite of freedom. If you want to enjoy the life you have now, you have to be able to look back. And if you can't do that, not only will you not enjoy the freedom and the opportunity that you have now as much as you have it, but you can actually turn a wonderful life into a new form of slavery. There was a recent study done on some of the richest people in the world. And uh, they were asked all kinds of questions. And one of the things that they claimed was that one of their greatest frustrations is the fact that people around them do not accept the fact that they're sometimes miserable. Think about this. People who are worth hundreds of millions of dollars want permission to feel rotten. And their neighbors won't allow them to feel rotten. Now think about it. Who's right? I guess on some level everyone has a right to feel rotten. But on the other hand, what is motivating that sense of emptiness and dissatisfaction? What? An unhappiness with all the largesse that they were given. Why? Because they don't know how to manage it. They don't know how to eat it. They don't know what to do with it. And as an aside, you want to enjoy wealth? Share it. There is no other way to enjoy what you have other than to give. And the more you give, the more you get. It's, it's just part of the human condition. But I, I'm sorry for advertising. It's just a good piece of advice. It's as old as mankind. But some people have forgotten it. When a person is not able to remember his, his impoverished past, no state of current wealth will give him a sense of freedom. And when a person is able to remember his impoverished past, any sense of freedom will make him feel rich. And we do that at the Pesach Seder. We interchange, we intersperse the commemoration of our hardships with the celebration of our freedom because that gives it meaning, it gives it context. And it's important, it's important for us to see the Passover Seder in that light. We're celebrating our freedom, but freedom from something. Freedom from slavery. A person was ill, and then they're no longer ill. It seriously helps to remember that illness, not in the sense of going back into a morbid and a depressed state, but to enjoy, to celebrate the blessings we have. And part of the reason people are so miserable is because we never stop to see how wonderful our lives are, because we take it all for granted. And one of the things we do at the Passover Seder is we do two things. I was once a slave and now I'm free. It's only because I was once a slave that the I am now free um, has any meaning. Uh, an illustration of this, an undeniable illustration of this, is of course uh, people who win the lottery. A person who went from spending his, his social security check by lottery tickets to being worth $50 million. It's, it's a fact that these people do not hold on to their wealth for any extent of time and a length of time. And their lives are more miserable after they win the lottery than before because you have to know how to manage wealth. And managing wealth means not forgetting where you came from. And when you don't forget where you came from, you value and you try to learn 
how to deal with the newly acquired wealth. And that's a very basic theme of the Passover Seder. Let's talk about the Seder plate. There are various customs about the Seder plate, but there aren't that many. The basic design of the Seder plate is a plate, and if you can afford it, it's silver, and if it's not silver, it's something as pretty as you can make it. And on top of the plate, you have three matzahs. And on top of the matzahs, you have six kinds arranged in two Vs, in two upside-down segels. That's one of the vowels of the Hebrew alphabet. And if you pay attention, what you have is three and three, and then underneath it, you have the three matzahs piled on top of the other, and then the plate, which is a total of ten. Now, for the mystics, that ten corresponds to the ten spheres, to the ten divine attributes. And the order is very, very precise, because in Kabbalah, three is considered a whole number. Three represents order, three represents humanity, peace, because three means that you have division, one and two, but you also have integration, an interconnectedness. The third represents peace in the otherwise separated two components. So three represents a complete system where you have complexity, sophistication, as opposed to plainness and only one tendency, but a balance and an order within them. And of course, three times three is a greater complexity. It's it's a complexity within complexities. And in mysticism, the number nine is very, very important. You have a right and a left and a center, that's three, and a top and a middle and a bottom, that makes nine. And then the Seder plate, you have the same nine represented in three sequences of three, representing the idea of order and interconnectedness and integration. That's the, the, the basic mystical interpretation of why the Pesach Seder is arranged this way, at least in our custom. But I want to focus on the plate. Because the plate has an additional meaning. The plate is, is not edible. It's not part of what we're going to consume at the Seder table. It's what's going to be left when the Seder is over. We're going to eat the egg, we're going to eat the mutter, we're going to eat the karpas, we're going to throw away the, the, the chicken shank, we're going to eat the matzahs, but we're not going to eat the plate. The significance of the plate is that everything needs to have a receptacle. It needs to be received into something. Everything has to be grounded. In other words, one of the great dilemmae of, of integrating our spiritual selves, our religious halves, into the real world is joining them. You know, a lot of people have an ordinary life and a spiritual life, but they're separate. And it's critically important to join them together, to merge them. Because each one is enhanced when the two are joined. And the plate itself represents bringing down, giving a permanence to this evening. We're sitting together, we're going to, in quotes, celebrate, we were once slaves and now we're free, and we're going to eat the matzah, we're going to eat the mutter, and we're going to eat the karpas, and we're going to eat all the wonderful things sitting on the Seder plate. But the plate means that we're not just going to do all these things and then move on, but that something is going to remain. Something is going to carry over, so that what it is that Passover means will continue into our regular lives, into our everyday. Kadesh, the first of the 15 simanim, the first of the 15 uh, aspects in the Seder, in the order of Passover, which I like to call the order of disorder. Kadesh means to make Kiddush. 
Making Kiddush is not unique at all to Passover. We do it on every holiday. I just want to make a couple of observations on the ritual level. The first is that at the Kiddush of Passover, everybody gets their own cup of wine. You don't just have one person make Kiddush and everybody either sip the wine or just respond to his Kiddush. Everybody has their own cup of wine. And in some communities, everybody actually says the Kiddush with the one leading the Haggadah, which means that somebody is saying the Kiddush out loud, and while he is saying the Kiddush out loud, everybody else uh, whispers it. I just want to make it clear that those women and girls who have lit the holiday candles have already made the Shechayana when they lit the holiday candles, and therefore even if they're saying the Kiddush along with their father or spouse or whatever person is leading the Seder, they should be careful, they should not repeat the Shechayana again, because one Shechayana suffices for a holiday. And um, we say Kiddush. Aside from that, and of course also the cup of Kiddush is one of the four cups that we traditionally drink at the place of a Seder, which is why even if you're not particularly fond of Wine, you should somehow get it in. You don't have to drink wine, you can drink grape juice. If, if it's impossible for you to partake of grapes, you've got to figure out how to deal with that problem. But Kiddush is basically a ritual which we do on every holiday. And I want to share something with you that is a little bit more involved, but I think worthwhile. And that is, if you take a look at the Kiddush that we recite on Shabbat, on, on the Sabbath, Versus the Kiddush we recite on the holidays, you will see a very significant difference. When we make Kiddush on Friday night, on Shabbat, we say, Mekadesh HaShabbat, we thank God, we bless God for giving sanctity to the Shabbos, to the seventh day of the week. It's a holy day. And a holy day means not only a day on which we do holy things, but a day where the time itself has an energy of holiness. In other words, we believe that time is a creation, made up of units, of pieces, and not all time is created the same. There are energies of days which are extraordinary, special. Shabbat is such a time. On the Moadim, on the holidays, we say the same thing, but with one tiny modification. We would finish the Kiddush with words, which means we thank God for sanctifying the nation of Israel and time. How come it is that on Shabbat we don't mention Yisrael in Kiddush? And on the holidays we do, and there's a very good reason why. The reason is because Shabbat has its own holiness, which means if no Jew on the planet kept Shabbos, Shabbos would still be special. Every seventh day is extraordinary. It's the energy of time as God created it. But if no Jew celebrated a holiday, the energy of the holiday would not happen. Because the Jewish law is, and the Jewish tradition is, and accordingly the Jewish mystical tradition is, that the power to create our calendar which is a loner slash solar calendar. It's, an, it's a joining of an ordinary, I mean the solar, and an extraordinary or a crazy lunar calendar was given to the, to, the, to the people, to us, to the Jews. And we actually create the holy time. In the ancient world, in the time to the temple, the rabbis who sat in the base of Mikdash and the holy temple would actually say, Mukudash, Mukudash. They would give sanctity to the first of the month. And the same is true of every holiday. Holidays are holy. Holy means we don't only do holy things on holy days, but the other way around. Because these days have holiness. They have an innate, they have an inherent, they have an inner special energy. And every special day has a unique special energy. And in Passover, the special energy of this time is an energy of freedom. Which means we have a special possibility, a special promise, a special opportunity to go out of one of our own personal containments, slaveries, 
and emancipate ourselves, free ourselves one little bit more than we were before Passover. And we say, Mekadesh Yisrael v'hazmanim to underscore that this power is ours. When we make Kiddush on Passover, we create Passover. The idea that this is a special day, and there's a special energy and holiness in this day, which empowers us to be free, is created by our Kiddush. This is the, it's a godly gift to man, to the Jewish nation, that when we make Kiddush, we create this holiness. And it's, the, of course, the apropos beginning to the Seder, because when you give this holiness to the date, and it's achieved, by the way, not only in the recitation of Kiddush, when we pray in the evening and we daven arbit, we also say the same Kiddush, we give sanctity to the day. We now have created for ourselves access to the energy of this holiday so that we can experience it and benefit from it, and with Hashem's help, with God Almighty's help, achieve some kind of personal freedom. Urchatz, we wash our hands. This is a very, very unusual thing, because we never do this. Most people wash their hands before they break bread. According to the Jewish law and the Jewish tradition, it's not only an optional thing. You want to wash your hands so they shouldn't be dirty. It's a requirement. And then of course, there's a very specific way. How we wash our hands, we pour water over each hand uh, twice or three times over our complete hand till our wrist. And we rub our hands together and we keep our hands pure. There are reasons why we wash our hands before we eat bread that have to do with the laws of tum'ava tahara, purity and impurity. In the times of the temple, Certain foods had to be holy, like the food, the, the, the offerings that went onto the altar in the temple, as well as certain offerings, certain gifts that had to be given to the priest and things like this had to be pure. And consequently, people had to be pure before they handled these kinds of foods. And King Solomon actually enacted the idea of Nitilat Yadayim, the people washed their hands even when they are touching, handling ordinary food, so that they should be careful when they handle um, a special food. This is called Chulin al Taharat HaKodesh. This means, in plain words, that we want to bring holiness even into our ordinary food, into our plain food, into our own food. Even if it's not for the temple and not for the priest, it's mine for me to eat in my own living room. We want to wash our hands to bring that kind of purity into our everyday life. But it was limited to bread. And that's it. There is a tradition that when you eat a fruit or a vegetable dipped in some kind of a liquid solution, you should also have to wash your hands. Why is another story. But many people are not particular about this. At the Passover Seder, even those who all year long are not particular about it, we do it. In fact, we create a ritual. We're actually going to wash our hands, take a vegetable, dip it in water, and eat it. I want to tell you a cute story. I met a woman years ago who was very, very far from a religious woman. She had a very assimilated life. And um, I spent some time with her and she said to me, I'm not very religious, but whenever I go to shul, I go to Chabad. So I said to her, why? There's so many other possible venues for prayer. Why do you go to Chabad? And she said that her feeling was that when it comes to religion, you don't have to do it. But if you do it, don't mess with it. Do it right. And that's what we're doing. We're beginning our Passover Seder by doing something that even many religious people don't do. We wash our hands to dip. Because the Passover Seder, if we're going to do it, 
We're going to do it white. Right. We wash our hands, not in anticipation of eating bread, but in anticipation of doing something which most people never think twice of, because on Passover we want to do it right. Now, since we're doing it right, let me just make it very clear. Be careful when you wash your hands not to make a blessing. If you do, you're going to be in a lot of trouble. When we wash our hands the first time, we do not make a blessing, because this is the unusual washing of the hand, and there's no bracha accorded this uh, custom. Karpas. We take a little piece of vegetable. Emphasis on little. We dip it in salt water. And we make a blessing. The blessing on the vegetable. And we eat it. That's the whole story. And um, if you have little kids who want another piece of potato, I, as a rabbi, give you permission to give them another piece. But the tradition is to eat a tiny piece. Less than a kazais. Less than an ounce of a vegetable. For those people who are keen on the halacha, it's because if you would eat a full ounce, there may be a question of you having to make an afterbracha, which would create further problems when you came to eat the bitter herb later. But don't worry about those things. We eat a small piece of vegetable, and um, like I said to you before, this is not the kind of thing that we would normally do. And the reason we do all of this is very, very simple. We've already established that this night is about children. And one of the things we do to engage the children is do strange things. We do things that are out of habit, that are not normal, which leads the child to say, excuse me, what's going on? The tradition is, you make Kiddush, that's normal, and then you wash. So the fact that the child did not make a blessing is not yet going to say to the child, wait a minute, why no blessing tonight? But then he gives him a vegetable, and a small amount of vegetable, and until he asks for the second time, he doesn't get more potatoes, and the kid says, what's going on? Why is tonight different? And that's exactly what you want him to say. Why is tonight different? You want to engage him. And everybody knows that the best way to have any conversation with anybody about anything is to let them lead the conversation in through a question. There's no more in tune student than a student who's paying attention to the answer to a question he asked. And many of the things we do at the Passover Seder are meant precisely to have this effect. Now let's talk about reality. Reality is the only ones who prepared for the Passover Seder are the children. They went to Hebrew school or to day school or to yeshiva and they learned everything that's going to happen. It's the parents who are surprised. Nevertheless, the model is that the children are prepared in school to learn that tonight we're going to do different things and they're going to ask, why are we doing these different things? They, of course, not only know the question, they know the answer. Because even a child who's fully informed and is not asking the question because he's curious and doesn't understand... But children are so excited by what is so special and different and unique about the Passover Seder that even when the child says, I'm asking you a question, but I'm telling you I know the answer, and I may know the answer better than you, is still asking the question. He's asking the question in celebration. He's asking the question in, in the excitement of knowing what Passover is and enjoying to be a part of it, and in fact, enjoying to be the center of attention at the Passover Seder. And this is what Carpus is about. Yachatz, we break bread. There's nothing unusual about that. Um, children are accustomed. You make Yiddish, you wash your hands, and you break bread. The fact that you sprinkled in, or you vegetabled in a sprinkle before, is a minor digression, and the child is almost convinced 
that we're back to the regular tradition. Kiddush, wash, now you break bread. But here you do something very, very strange. You break the bread and don't eat it. You put it away. You save it for later. And the child looks at the broken bread and sees how you've taken a whole matzah, snapped it in half, and the larger piece you've wrapped in a napkin or put it away someplace. And of course the children in many communities are going to spend the entire night trying to snatch it away without anybody seeing it and they want to get whatever goodie they're going to get uh, as compensation for their efforts. And the smaller piece is left on the Seder plate. And um, in the meantime, the child is not yet completely curious about why this is transpiring. That curiosity will come soon. But already the child has a significant amount of wonder. I don't understand. We washed, we didn't make a blessing, we ate a vegetable and a small piece at that. Now we broke bread and didn't consume it. We left it on the table. And I want to share with you something very, very meaningful, incredibly, incredibly meaningful. The Jewish tradition in most communities is that we have three matzahs. And we break the middle one. It's called Levi. Now the reason we have three matzahs is because according to Jewish law, Jewish tradition, every Passover, every holiday, every Shabbos, every Shabbat, you need two whole loaves, which have reminiscent of something that happened way back in the desert. Lechem Mishneh, two complete loaves of bread. Now since on Passover you're going to break a loaf, you're going to break a piece of the bread, and it's going to be unwhole, so by having three, you have the broken matzah and two whole matzahs. I want you to know that there is the opinion of the Vilna Gon, Rebbe Yahweh Vilna, who held that the Passover Seder should have only two matzahs. And when you break the matzah in half, you now have a matzah and a half. And later on, when you're going to wash and break bread, you're not going to have two loaves that are whole. You're going to have a whole loaf and a broken loaf. And the logic is wonderful. The logic is simple. On Passover, the broken is whole. In fact, the broken is wholer than the whole itself. Now, most Jews do not follow this opinion of the Gro, of the Vilner God. Most Jews, Sfarim, Ashkenazim, Hasidim, and even many Misnagdim, have three matzahs. But the idea, the message that's being compared here is really critical. The idea of Passover is we were slaves. And there's nothing more representative of a slave than a broken piece of bread. The entire Magid, the recitation of the Haggadah, which is pages and pages of reading, which tells the story of our history, of our slavery and our freedom, which of course is meant to be not only a traditional and historic recommemoration, but to have some contemporary relevance to us, is said over that broken piece. For much of the Haggadah, not for all of it, that broken piece sticks out of our kaida, out of our Seder plate a little bit. And we look at the broken piece. And the broken piece reminds us of the slavery. There's a Yiddish expression that says, there is nothing more whole than a broken heart. Now I hope your heart's not broken. But a broken heart is so open and so porous to be filled with things of meaning. And at the Pesach say that we have the Prusa, the broken piece. And the entire night revolves around that broken piece of matzah. So even though we have two whole loaves in addition, it is this broken piece of matzah that is the basis for the entire Passover Seder. And this is why we break the matzah before the Seder, before the Haggadah, not afterwards. It's not to put away the Afikoyman. It's to leave the broken piece and to have a broken piece of bread sitting on a Passover Seder and to remember that some of our ancestors, once upon a time, 
had a broken piece of bread to eat. And, uh, and we remember that, to enjoy the broken piece of bread we eat at our very wonderful, our very blessed Seder that we have in our homes and in our communities today. Now in line with this idea of the broken piece, I want to tell you a really wonderful story. And I believe it's a true story. That there was a rabbi who had a disciple. And I'm sorry I don't know any names. Who was incredibly pious and generous and kind in an open home. He was constantly sharing and giving. Literally sharing his broken piece of bread with somebody whose heart was more broken than his own. And his rabbi became aware of his generosity and his selflessness. So he visited his broken down house and he stayed in a tiny little house in a, in a broken bed with a compromised mattress and he ate the little kashe and the hard bread that he was served. And he realized how happy and giving his disciple was that before he left his home he blessed him with wealth. And uh, the wealth turned out to be a curse. The richer he become, became, the more self-absorbed he became. He had no time for people. He had no space for people. He couldn't suffer. People who were unclean, who were unkempt, who were to him undignified, and he completely forgot that a short while before that was literally him. At first, he would let people into his home, but he would have his servants serve them. It came to a point where he wouldn't let them across the threshold of his house. He had a secretary, he had no money. His rabbi heard of the turns of events. Here he'd become wealthy and become so heartless, so cold, and if you wanted to be honest about it, so miserable at the same time. So he visited his disciple again. And now he was living in an estate, in a palace, with a beautiful home that was meticulous and clean, and there wasn't a body to be found. And when the rabbi came to see his disciple, he was so happy to see him. He says, Rabbi, remember what you came to last time, and look what I have now. I have a palace. He said, he can have the best bed in the nicest room with the greatest view. And he took him around his house and the rabbi took it all in, went from room to room, until he came to the master bedroom, and there was a gigantic bedroom that opened up into this uh, beautiful landscape. And there were these large windows, and separating one window from the next was a mirror. And the rabbi looked into the mirror, and then he looked out the window. And then he looked at the mirror again, and looked out the window again. And he says... Who's that out there on the lawn? And he identified Shmerel and Betel and Chaim and Malkin and Broch and Fege. And then he asked his disciple very innocently, so how come when I look through this glass, I see people? And when I look through this glass, I see only myself. So he says, Rabbi, I'll explain it to you. He says, this glass has a layer of silver smeared behind it. And as a result... Instead of being transparent, it becomes reflective. When you look at it, you see only yourself. So the rabbi says rhetorically, I see. So when you take a piece of glass, which is supposed to be see-through, and you put silver behind it, instead of seeing other people, you see only yourself. And he said it with so much emotion that his student understood exactly what the message was. And he broke down. And he conceded that the silver had made him see only himself. And he promised his teacher that he would mend his ways. And he did. And he symbolically took a knife and scraped off a little of the silver from the back of the mirror. So it shouldn't be perfect. And he should remember that with all the silver that he has, he should have the capacity to see not only himself, 
but to see other people as well. And this is part of the message of the broken piece of bread we have at a Passover Seder. It reminds us of our own brokenness. And to make sure that when we look at a window, we should see beyond it and not see only ourselves. Maggit. Here goes the recitation of the Haggadah. We're going to read pages. Now, of course, if you're really religious, you'll read all the pages. If you're not so religious, you'll skip a few pages. I'm going to tell you later on which passages of the Haggadah must be recited. But here again, the central theme of all of Passover Seder, particularly Magid, is the children. And we try to create a framework where the children are going to ask questions. And immediately the child is wondering, I just broke bread. I'm not getting to eat it. It's being put back into the Seder plate. It's being hidden away in some I don't know where. And this in itself creates a curiosity in the child that children ask. And you want to engage with the children. Now, of course, one of the things about this engagement is the idea of asking questions and getting answers. And I want to tell you something very, very important. And that is, one of the things that's part of the Jewish tradition is the asking of questions and the giving of answers. And one of the things which is also critically a part of the Jewish tradition is that we not lie to our children. We don't fool our children, we don't play with our children, because then we are disrespecting them. And we're creating from them artificial cynics. And cynicism is not a good way. When a child asks a question, they're entitled to an answer. And if we don't have an answer, the answer is, I don't know. We are giving our child so much more when we say to the child, I don't know, than when we start playing around with the child and say such things as, well, I can't explain it to you. When you'll get older, you don't understand. Or, or what many people do, unfortunately, is make a joke out of the child's question. This should never be done. And certainly at the Passover Seder, children... This is certainly my experience. Wait all year long to ask their questions. And when it gets to Passover, sorry, no, no time. But it's very, very important that we appreciate that this engagement with our children is such that we respect our children. And when the question is a question, and the question deserves an answer, and I don't know is an answer, but playing a game with a child and messing around with the child's head is unacceptable and wrong. I think it's important. My rabbi, where I pray, where I daven, always says, on such occasions, remember, don't become OCD. Don't become obsessive. Sometimes you get so caught up in the ritual that the entire event becomes rigid and cold and nervous. Yiddishkeit is not supposed to be compulsive. It has to be done correctly. And if you're not that experienced, you may find some trouble doing it correctly, but it's critically important. Correct is joyous. Correct is that the children love the Passover Seder rather than dealing with a father or a mother who are all uptight about matzah and timing and other technical details. It's very, very important that we engage the children. There should be a happy atmosphere. And within the framework of that happy atmosphere, the children ask and we give them answers. And if we don't know, we say, I don't know. And we're going to ask somebody else because there's always someone to ask. Rachza. We wash our hands. Now this time we make a bracha because this is actually normal. We're finally not just going to break bread, but eat it. And of course, the Jewish tradition is, and I explained it to you before, that before we eat bread, we wash our hands. The idea is that although the food we're eating is not holy, we want to bring holiness into our ordinary food, which is called in Hebrew, chulin al-taharat ha-kodesh. We want to bring holiness into what is ordinary, but we do it only for bread. 
and this time we're going to wash our hands and we're going to say a blessing and of course we're not going to talk. Um, I suggest that when you wash your hands, before you wash your hands actually, you should prepare the matzah for all the people sitting around the table because after you wash your hands, if you're going to have to start handing out matzahs, it may become very, very tedious, very, very involved. So do it before. Matzah. Moitzi matzah. Those are two different points. Moitzi means bread and matzah means special bread. They go together, but they're actually two parts of the Seder. Now what's going to happen is, you're going to wash, and then you're going to break bread. I would like to make a suggestion, if you have more than one or two people at your Seder, to prepare the matzah in advance, because it becomes very involved. And especially if you're careful about the talk, you have a lot of uh-uh new news running around. So what you should do is... Um, all the people that you're responsible for, as the leader of the Seder, take a bag, plastic bag, and put the matzah that they need. They need about a half a matzah for mighty matzah. If they're children, it doesn't have to be a whole half a matzah. And give it to them before. So that when you make the blessings, they don't have to sit around and wait for you to hand it for them. It gets very, very involved and very distracting. Um, and then go wash. And then you sit down. You take all three loaves, all three pieces of matzah together, the two whole ones and the middle one that's broken. And you say, which means... We thank God for giving us bread. Then you lower the third matzah and holding the top one and the middle one, you make the bracha, the blessing, we thank God for the mitzvah, for the commandment of matzah. Now one of the things that's important to consider is the idea that when we do mitzvahs, we shouldn't feel like they're a burden. We should celebrate them. Every time we fulfill a divine commandment, we're connecting to God. And Sometimes connection to God gets kind of costly. I understand that. But ultimately it's preferred and it's certainly higher for us to appreciate how the, matzah, how the mitzvah connects us to God and therefore gives an incredible amount of meaning to our lives. So we should find a way of making this celebratory rather than burdensome. And you're going to break the matzah. And if you have a, a seder plate, you have to eat a little bit from the top and a little bit from the middle matzah. And we lean. When we eat the matzah, we lean. On our left side, of course, not on our right side. That could be dangerous. And we eat the matzah. And we enjoy the beginning of Pesach. Now, I just want to share this little mystical thought with you. Matzah is three Hebrew letters. Mem, Tzadik, He. Now, for the Kabbalists who are keeping score at home, there is a, a mystical formula by which Hebrew letters are interchangeable with other Hebrew letters. There are many, many different methods to this. One of them is called Atbash. Atbash means that the first letter and the last letter are interchangeable. Which means the second letter and the second to the last letter are also interchangeable. The third letter and the third to the last letter are interchangeable, of course. And they meet, I believe, at Chof and Lamed. Chof and Lamed would be the last of the first letter and the last of the second letters. Accordingly, if you'll do the math, you'll realize that Mem is Yud and Tzadik is He. Yud and He is God's name. So actually, hidden in the word matzah is God's name. Mem and Tzadik is Yud and He, and then comes the second He. Chametz, which means leavened bread, are the same letters, also a Mem and a Tzadik, which represent Yud and He, but a Ches. What's the difference between the He and the Ches? It's very simple. Both of them are open at the bottom, which means to say, you can fall. A person finds himself in a better situation, being held up, you can fall through the bottom. Which means, of course, spiritually, we can get into trouble. We can sin. We can give into weakness, which according to tonight's 
version, we can become slaves. But the hay has an opening at the top that the ches does not. And that opening at the top means you can always climb back up and creep back in. And that's a wonderful message of matzah. That a Jew has a relationship with God and we can fall out of it. We've all known that experience personally. Some to a greater extent, others to a lesser extent, but we all understand what weakness is. And the beautiful message of matzah is there's an opening at the top that allows those who have lost their footing to climb back up and creep back into the hay. And that's one of the many, many, many uh, different insights into the matzah, including that they have humility and faith and all the rest. But this is one of those ideas that matzah's message is that you can always come back. You can always have a connection. And this is what happens at the Pesach Seder when we eat uh, matzah. And I, again, I want to underscore that it's important to try to make it a positive experience. Enjoy the matzah. Don't hate it. Maror, the bitter herb. Everybody knows what the story with the bitter herb is. You come to the Seder and you got to eat lettuce. The really religious amongst us eat horseradish. And if you're very religious, eat so much horseradish that you turn red and cough and you can't catch your breath. Now, this is all a symbol. Eating some horseradish, sitting in your living room, and getting temporarily... Um, uh, respiratory trouble, which passes in a few seconds, is not exactly what mother is. It's what mother symbolizes. Mother means bitterness. And there's an enormous amount of bitterness in our history. There's an enormous amount of bitterness in the world. And that's what happens when we eat mother. We're supposed to con- contemplate the maror, the bitterness in the world. I'll tell you something. The Lubavitcher Rebbe was a very private man. And although he was such a public rebbe, he did everything in private. His personal life was really off limits to his chassidim. But uh, Passover, for many, many years, was in a semi-public environment. And he ate much more mother than he did matzah. Even though matzah is a more important mitzvah, but mother, the bitter herb, he ate. And he couldn't catch his breath, and he had to open the windows. I don't know why, but I could only imagine, because... When you eat mother, you're remembering all that bitterness. We, as a nation, as a community, as a movement, don't believe in morbidity. When a Jewish person creates the center of his life, uh, Jewish suffering, then he's defeating what Judaism is about. Jewish people are the most optimistic people in history. I would say probably more than any other reason, the reason we exist is because we're so incredibly optimistic. We bounce back from everything time and time and time again. And we only do so because we look to the future and not to the past. We're very positive people. And marod is not all of Judaism, but it's a part of it. And when we eat the bitter herb, we're remembering all the bitterness. And we're not remembering all the bitterness to find people to be angry at. We're not remembering all the bitterness even to be angry with God, which some people get a special delight from. Remembering all the bitterness, number one, to become sensitive or to be more sensitive to the bitterness that may still exist. And more importantly, to give a context to the blessings of our lives. When we forget our past, we put our future into terrible risk. And when we remember our past, we secure our future. And the morir is the recollections of the past that give so much meaning to the matzah and to the wine and to everything else we do with the Pesach Seder which celebrates our freedom and is the basis for our future. And that's the meaning of eating water. You're, you're eating something bitter and you're, you're remembering that 
part of life is bitterness, and it's unavoidable. I'll tell you something very poignant. A woman visited the Lubavitcher Rebbe, and she said to him, Rabbi, my life is so difficult, I have so many difficulties, my life is full of problems. And the Lubavitcher Rebbe said to her very characteristically, he probably said this a thousand times, he says, you have no problems, only challenges. I had a student years ago who was a very difficult childhood, and I shared this with him, so he made little posters which he would hang up wherever he would go. You have no problems, only challenges. Now imagine you having a problem and going to see a rabbi or a therapist and the consolation you get is, no, it's not a problem, it's a challenge. You, you may feel that you're being treated without sensitivity. Someone has a hardship, you want someone to give them empathy and not tell them they don't have any problems. But the Lubavitcher Rebbe was an incredibly empathetic man, but he was also a very pragmatic person, which meant he always looked for the solution. And the solution to our problem is to see them not as problems, but as challenges. The solution to the martyr is not woe is us. The solution to the martyr, to the bitterness, is to spin the martyr away from being an insoluble problem, away from being a slavery which imprisons us and leaves us immobile, frozen, into a challenge that needs to be overcome. And when we overcome it, we have a real event of redemption and a redemption that gives incredible meaning not just to our lives, but to the challenges themselves. And this is the significance of murder. Kairach, the sandwich, a little matzah, a little murder. Just for the record, you don't need that much matzah. When you ate matzah before, you needed a large piece of matzah. A half a matzah, and if you really want to be religious, and you have your own Seder plate, don't tell this to anybody, but you're supposed to eat a whole matzah. The half of Levi and half of Koyin. If you don't have a Seder plate, you need only half a matzah. But Koyrech needs a third of a matzah broken in two, which means two-sixths of a matzah and a couple of pieces of lettuce inside, and there you have your sandwich. Why do we eat Koyrech? Well, simple. In the times of the temple, there was a rabbi named Hillel, and he would eat the Paschal lamb, the Karben Pesach, with the matzah and the mud. Now think about this. The Jewish law is and was that the Passover lamb, which was delicious, was roasted lamb, and was very tender, because the lambs were supposed to be very young, under a year old, is supposed to be eaten last. It's supposed to be eaten last so that you go to sleep with the taste of, the, of that delicious meat in your mouth. So rabbis held, save the meat for last and eat it alone. And Hillel said, no, no, we're going to eat it together with the matzah and with the murder. The argument against it went, well, then you're not going to taste it as well. And Hillel said, but that's what the biblical commandment is. Al-Matzah, eat it all together. So Hillel was a distinct opinion. He was not the opinion of the rabbis who held that although it's important to taste the carbon Pesach, the Paschal lamb, it's eaten together with the matzah and the murder. It's made into a sandwich and that's how it was eaten. So we follow Hillel's custom also. In other words, that's not the law, it's the, the custom. The law is to eat the matzah first and the mother second, but to remember Hillel's tradition, we eat them both together. And we lean. When we eat the kairach sandwich, although there's muttered inside, we lean. And again, I want to make it clear, you don't have to eat that much. My sense is that most people, most of the time, eat far more than they need. The first piece of matzah should be large. After that, whatever you're going to eat is probably going to be too much. But like I said to you before, try to enjoy it. But I want to share something very interesting that dawned on me as I was preparing this. And that is, that Kairach reminds me of Kreplach. And they almost have the same letters, huh? You know what Kreplach is? Kreplach is a food that we eat the day before Yom Kippur, the day before Simchat Torah, and on Purim. 
Kreplach is an Eastern European dish shaped like a triangle, which is a dough on the outside and a little meat inside. And there's actually mystical reasons for why we eat kreplach, because the meat is red and the dough which covers it is white. And it comes to symbolize the idea, the red represents judgment, the bitterness, the hardships of light, of life. And the white represents the pleasantness, the light, the joy of life. And you take the little bit of meat, you put it inside the krepel, you cover it from both sides so that it reminds you of the fact that when we have a beautiful, peaceful life hidden underneath it, is the bitterness. In other words, the value and the meaning of our wonderful times is only as valuable and as meaningful as we recollect the hardships. So it dawns on me that although Hillel made the sandwich for his reasons, one of the many ideas that you can possibly extract from the eating of the sandwiches, you take the bitter herbs, you cover them with matzah, and you eat them together, which means to say you're going to enjoy your freedom. And you're going to really enjoy your freedom when you fully appreciate the fact that this freedom comes after bitterness, or underneath the freedom is bitterness. Or to say it even more profoundly, that we're not really free unless we free ourselves from an Egypt. It's almost like a necessity to have a challenge to get past. If everything is too easy, then there's something unwhole about us. Everybody needs to find challenge and to exceed it. The best of us who have the best of lives need to find challenges in their own lives. And it's necessary to create them artificially to to redeem themselves, to go past themselves. And I believe that perhaps this is one of the messages that you can extract from Kairach. The first Chabad Rebbe, Rabbi Shneir Zalman, the author of the Tanya, uh, when he was a young man, was an incredible genius. And one of his great laments, one of his great complaints, was that he never struggled in his life. Ideas came to him so easy that he never struggled. And when he met his holy master, the great Magid of Mizrich, for the first time, he said to him, I feel unwhole. I feel compromised. There's something wrong with me. And his master said, why? He says, because I've never struggled. If you have no struggle, you don't know what freedom is. You don't know what finding anything is. You don't know what the victory of getting past the challenge is. And perhaps the putting the mutter and the matzah together and having the matzah sit on top and on the bottom of the mutter comes to represent that. Shulchan Aruch. Finally, we get to eat. I'm sure you've heard the story about the fellow who heard that Jews give out free food. You have to just wait a while. <laughs> and right after the Kodesh, he ran out of patience and he left and he said, not any, wait five more minutes, they would have fed you. My problem is, where do you put this food? After the matzah and the murder and the Kodesh and the two cups of wine. Now, where is their room? Unless, you know, Jews come with an extra tank. I, I don't mean to say that cynically, but how are you supposed to eat? But you're supposed to eat a festive meal and, for the sake of God and man, enjoy it. Um, we finally eat. And of course, this is supposed to be a regular festive meal. We eat traditional Jewish foods and we enjoy it. The custom is that during the Passover Seder, we don't drink extra wine other than the four cups. But at this point, you can drink as much wine or grape juice as is your fancy and there's no problem with that. In some traditions, the meal is begun by eating the egg that was on the Seder plate. The egg is reminiscent of one of the sacrifices that would traditionally have been brought on Passover. We eat an egg because some people are careful not to eat meat, so it should in no way reflect a sacrifice. We have no temple, we don't bring sacrifices. But in some communities, the meal began uh, with an egg. But I do want to tell you, as a practical matter, don't overeat, because you have to eat more matzah after this delicious meal. So you have to, so to speak... uh, 
measure your portions. Eat a little bit of this and a little bit of this and a little bit of this. Remember you've already eaten close to a whole matzah and quite a few leaves and you're going to be eating another volume of matzah. So you don't want to walk away from the siddur like, like an animal that can't walk. So be aware of how much you've eaten and how you're going to eat so that you don't overeat and that you can enjoy your meal and enjoy the matzah rather than feel like you're being stuffed, which of course is not only not healthy, but not good and not right and not religious. So enjoy the meal, but bear in mind that um, you still have to eat more matzah. Now some people are very particular on the first night to keep track of the clock. Now this is not everybody's tradition, but some are particular because you want to eat the afikoymen, which is the matzah you're going to eat after the meal before midnight. If you are so inclined, pay attention to the clock and uh, schedule your meal and the various courses accordingly. But most of all, enjoy your meal. This is part of the ritual. This is part of the holiday. It's not only wonderful and familial, but it's also holy. Tzafun. Tzafun means to find what's been hidden. That's what the word means. And of course, it's a reference to the Afikoyman, which if you're lucky, the child or grandchild who snatched it knows where he put it and he didn't sit on it. You understand? He didn't make it into matzah milk. Uh, most Jewish communities have a tradition that the Afikoyman is stolen. Not all, but most. The stealing of the Afikoyman is a great way to keep the children awake, uh, to keep them engaged, and to make it fun. But uh, they're entitled to steal your Afikoyman, not to sit on it or to feed it to the fish. They have to protect it. So part of the, the game of steal the Afikoyman is that make sure that when you need to eat it, it exists and it's in an edible form. The, the idea of tzafun is that you hide the matzah, and therefore uncovering it is called tzafun, taking out what has been hidden. But obviously, the idea resonates with meaning. It just shouts at you, there's a hidden idea here. And of course, the hidden idea is that there is always something hidden. There's always the unknown. And there's a, a logical argument that says that what is unknown is always more than the known. In other words, when you look to the future, the future is unknown. And so long as it's the future, the promise is infinite. The moment it becomes the known, it's defined. In other words, this great promise, this great hope, this great joy, this great optimism in what has not yet been. And the Afikoyman represents that. Tzafun, what is hidden. We take out the Afikoyman and we eat it. And here the tradition is that you should eat two kazesim, two ounces, but it's a smaller shir because it's a rabbinic shir. In other words, if you want to do the Afikoyman correctly, eat about two-thirds of a matzah. If you can. If you can't, you can't, obviously. Eating food that is really not natural is not fulfilling a mitzvah. It's making yourself sick. But if you can, and like I said to you before, try to temper your meal so that there's room left for the matzah. But at least eat a third of a matzah. If you can't eat two-thirds of a matzah, eat a third of a matzah. And with the Afrikaim, we eat leaning. It reminds us of the Passover offering, which every person had to eat an ounce of meat as opposed to matzah, and you will find that meat goes down a lot easier than a piece of matzah. But we don't have the temple nowadays, we don't have actual sacrifices, so we eat matzah instead of the Paschal offering. And of course, again, the, the practical idea is that we're eating it so that the taste of the matzah stay with us as we go to sleep that night. Uh, spiritually and mystically, it represents the unknown, the future, the rewards to come the blessings to come, and the future is always limitless. So we, we start of the Passover Seder by commemorating our past, we bring it into our present, 
and we look to our future. Tzafan represents what we don't know yet, and we don't know yet will it, with the help of God, be more wonderful than we could possibly fathom and possibly imagine. And our only hope is that we have what it takes to enjoy it all. Beirach, ready to bench, to grace after meals. Of course, this is part of every meal. Shabbat, Chagim, anytime you wash and eat bread, we have to say the four blessings of the grace after meals. The four blessings are three biblical blessings, that's the first three, and the fourth blessing, which was considered rabbinic, which was added later. And on this night, we fill up the third cup, which means even those Jews who usually don't employ a cup of wine when they say grace after meals, because that cup is considered voluntary or not as mandatory, and the Passover night, everybody is going to fill up a third cup Everybody means not only every table, but every person is going to fill up their own third cup. And we're going to hold a cup and we're going to say grace after meals. We're going to thank God for the food we eat. And again, the idea is that on this special night, in addition to doing all the special things that are very unique and very distinct, for this night we do all the ordinary things. And one of the greatest things we do is thank God for the everyday things we have. So many of us only remember God when we have trouble. Others of us Remember God when things that happen are extraordinary. But we have to remember that the greatest miracle that God has given us, that so many things in our lives are normal. Air, water. In our civilization, peace, order. You can walk the streets, no one's going to eat you. Those are incredible miracles. Incredible miracles. Such incredible miracles that if we would be forced to uh, see them individually, we'd be crazy. We were designed to take them for granted. And that's good. We're supposed to take them for granted. But it's also good to see the miracles of the everyday. And one of those miracles is the miracle of food. The halacha, the Jewish law, says that when you say a blessing on food, that is God handing you the food. And just think of it in these terms. What's the difference between you being served and you serving yourself? It's not a difference in the pre-meal. It defines the meal in an entirely different way. When someone gives you something, and somebody feeds you, there's a lot of respect. There's respect on the recipient of that food, and there's respect by the one giving it to you. When you take, there's no respect. And blessings before we eat, and after we eat, is the acknowledging that we don't simply take. God gives us. And uh, we thank God for having given us. And we especially thank God for God having given us in such a way that it's so easy for us to forget that God has given us. That only amplifies the incredible goodness of God and the grace of God in our lives and in our homes and our food and our clothing and our, all of our worldly possessions. After we bench, after we say grace after meals, we're going to fill the fourth cup. But we're going to fill Elijah's cup, Yahweh Navi's cup. The Jewish tradition is that Elijah the prophet has to come to every Passover Seder and uh, as the joke goes or as the expression is, drink from the cup. The kids are going to sit there and measure the micrometers of the wine to see how much I'll yo and they sip from everybody's cup. I have a suspicion that if he had a little sip from everybody's cup, he'd be too drunk to get to your neighbor's house. But Elijah visits the Jewish home because he has to be a witness that Jewish people still keep the covenant. He once accused the Jews of of breaking the covenant on Passover, when we celebrate our covenant with God, El Yohanavi has to visit and report to God that as inadequate as we may be, we're still celebrating Passover. 
we still believe, we still wait for the redemption, and Elijah the prophet has to announce the redemption. And of course the Jewish tradition is, we fill up the cup of Elijah and we open the door. We go to the door and we greet him, figuratively speaking, so to speak. Many Jews take a candle to represent the soul of Elijah, because when you cannot see him, clearly he's not here physically. And we pray. We pray for God to remember all of our suffering, and we pray that we be healed, and that all those who suffer be healed, and that the world be healed, and the world become a better place. And then we sit back down. And uh, we're going to fill the third cup, and we're going to begin um, the latter half of the Seder. One of the great Hasidic masters said to his son, that when the door is open, and Elijah the prophet enters, it's a very special moment. It's a spiritual moment. It's like the gates of heaven are open. And you can ask for anything. So if you're foolish, you ask for a new car. But if you're wise, you ask for wisdom. You ask for spiritual things, for things that are really important. And in the spirit and in the language of the Pesach Seder, you ask for freedom. Freedom from outer containments and limitations, and most importantly, from the limitations we so often impose upon ourselves. Haleo. This is the home stretch of the Haggadah. And most people are either drunk or exhausted or a combination of the two. But this is really beautiful. And I have to tell this to you. It's pages. You just read a bunch of Psalms from the Halel, from the traditional praising of God. And then you're going to say um, the 26 Kili Olam that His God, kindness is everlasting or His kindness reaches the world. And then you're going to say Nishmat, which is a prayer that has to do with the Jewish soul and praising Hashem, God Almighty, for all the wonderful things He does for us in this world. I just want to tell you this. When I grew up, by the time the second half of the Seder came, we were wired and exhausted, you know? We were hyperactive and impatient, and my father should live and be well, would recite the Halel so patiently and so sweetly. But that's one of the great recollections of my childhood. And when I was an adult, he told me that when he was young, he had the incredible good fortune to be at the Seder of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And he told me that, as a rule, the Seder of the Lubavitcher Rebbe was quite quick. And the last part of the Seder, this is where the Rebbe would slow down, and in a very soft voice, and to be very close to him, he would thank God, thank God for all the blessings. And uh, that's what the Halel is. It's full of praises to God, thanking God for all the wonderful things that we have, and all the wonderful things that we're going to have. The Jewish tradition is that the Halel on the Passover night is split in two. The first part of the Halel is recited before we ate matzah. And the second part of the Halel and a bunch of other wonderful things are said now. And the idea is that the part of the Halel we said before celebrates the redemptions we've already experienced. The Halel we're reciting now is representing the redemptions that we anticipate and we wait for. Our own personal redemptions, the redemptions of our families, our communities, and our world and ultimately the redemption associated with the coming of the Mashiach. So it's very meaningful. And the words are beautiful. If you don't know how to say them in Hebrew, say them in English and pray. You know, people always ask me, why should you pray? Why should you talk to God? And the answer is not for what you're going to get back, but for the connection. Prayer is not only about getting something. It's about being connected. And it's whatever time of the night it is, you're not going anyplace, right? And you're probably not getting up early tomorrow morning either, I would hope. Connect. And make it a positive experience, and uh, hopefully the children will understand.
Nirza. Nirza means nothing. Nothing. It's just a word at the end of the Seder. In some traditions, there are pages and pages that are recited afterwards. This is all the fun part. The Adir Hu and the Echad Miyedeya and the Chad Gadya and so forth. It's not in the Chabad tradition. So uh, enjoy the Chad Gadya, as I also do, because I have some non-Chabad genes in me. And I'm sure half of Chabad Hasidim, although it's not in the Seder, sing many of the songs and the hymns that follow the Seder. But Nirza is not representative of those hymns. Nirza means the end. The literal translation of the word Nirza, the root of that word is Ratzon, which means will. And Nirza means God is happy. God's will has been satisfied. The Seder is over, we've done it all, and not only have we done it all, we've done it all and enjoyed it, and found it emancipating as opposed to a burden. And God is happy. And God's will has been satisfied. But I want to share this. What satisfies God's will is not the fact that we made a Seder and that the Seder is over. What satisfies God's will is that we made a Seder. And in making the Seder, we contemplated, we thought a little bit, and talked a lot, and we moved, and we brought together with our family and friends. And it inspired the tomorrow. It inspired a will to be more Jewish tomorrow. And it's that will which gives God satisfaction. If a person walks away from the Passover Seder thinking, well, I did my duty, I'll be back next year, that's not Nitzah. It's I did my duty and I want to be more Jewish this year than I was last year. The new will that the Pesach Seder creates is what gives God satisfaction from the fact that we enjoyed a wonderful Passover Seder. And of course, the end of the Seder is we make an after-blessing, we drink a fourth cup of wine, and again we lean, and then we make an after-blessing, and then all together we announce L'Shanahab Abir Ushalayim next year in Jerusalem, and I'm sure you know the idea. Next year in Jerusalem doesn't mean you have to wait a year for the Mashiach. He can come right now so that by next year we've already been there for a very long time. And may God Almighty have mercy on all of us. Give us the meaning of freedom. Give us the experience of freedom, the opportunity to be even more free and that we should immediately merit the coming of Mashiach and freedom that's real and permanent and lasting not only for ourselves but for His entire earth and all that dwell upon it.